This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome to another episode of the Talking Texas podcast. I'm your host, Hudson Standish of Horns 24-7. Joined, as always, throughout the football season with Horns 24-7 recruiting editor, Mike Roach. Mike, got a lot to talk about this week. Not going to be as jovial of an episode as we've recorded in uh, past weeks. I think it could be jovial still. We're jovial guys. Um, True. And we're, and I guess... we're here to help everybody through it by being jovial. True. I guess... There's a certain segment of the people listening to this that kind of want to wallow in despair and will probably toe the line because my my vibe check, I'm probably not passing. We'll get you there. How about this? Let's start with this. Um, we have big opportunities for the specific things draft. Did we hit on the Gary Patterson? We did, and we got the bonus point because, if you'll remember, it was all about the bonus point if they actually played a song of his. Oh, yes, and they did. We sure, we sure did get the song. Quite literally the one that I think we joked about uh, where he was he wrote it after being fired for TCU. Uh, so, yeah, we, we ended up hitting on that, but I was so out of it during the game, I just could not care less once that, uh, I think... I think it was out of a commercial break once that hit. Yeah, a really disappointing effort from one side of the ball. I think we should probably start by giving the defense its credit. I mean, they Absolutely. did. They did a – this wasn't a total team flop. When Texas came out on – you know, you usually get a feel for the way this Texas team is going to play for how the defense performs on the first couple of drives. And watching that game, you're thinking, okay, like we just got to get some things going offensively and this should be fairly easy. And fortunately those things never kind of came offensively, but man, from Baron Sorrell being like out of his, out of his mind uh, that night to basically the entire defensive front, Jalen Ford and DeMarvey and Overshone having really strong games, Jade Barron playing an incredible game. Um, even Terrence Brooks, who was kind of thrust into action at corner never really showed up as a big-time culprit for anything. They basically allowed two big plays that were the difference in the game. And I think that against one of the most explosive offenses in the country, they did enough to get a win. It's especially impressive of a defensive performance when you consider TCU started at their own 12 and their own 34 uh, to start off the game. But because of the Texas's, you know, the Texas offense's ineptitude, right, TCU has possession starting at the Texas 49, 44, 
36 and 34, along with, I believe, at the Texas uh, 46, and they only get three points in the first half. Yeah, I mean, they were put in bad positions over and over again and came up with stops. Even, you know, they allowed them to get into field goal range the one time, other than the time they kicked a field goal that was good. And, you know, the field goal was missed. So um, they did a they did a fantastic job limiting those big play weapons, keeping Max Duggan uncomfortable, and even Kendra Miller until he eventually broke out. And it is a shame because – on one side of the ball, I believe Steve Sarkeesian on Rewind talked about how they really thought that the running game was going to be the key. So when that didn't work, they were kind of left scrambling. So it is just such an unfortunate situation, right, where the offense kind of flubs what they think the key to the game is, while the defensive staff, I mean, just completely had a read on Garrett Riley's TCU offense. I mean, a unit that teams have been struggling all year to keep under 30 in the first half, especially Texas was just really playing well. And like you said, it's essentially two, two big plays that lead to the touchdowns of the game. You have the busted run that Kendra Miller takes kind of a similar, um, kind of a similar uh, run uh, for a long touchdown that Alabama had with Jason McClellan. Right. And then you have Anthony cook and Terrence Brooks, I believe just getting uh, confused on combo coverage. But at that point in the game, I hate to even, you know, I hate to even do too much of a bad mark against them because again, that late in the fourth quarter with the offense playing the way it was, it was eventually going to unravel to some degree. Not to mention you can say they kind of effectively wiped one of those off the board or at least canceled it out by adding the only touchdown of the game. Yeah, exactly. Which again, also just feels like such a fluke where Max Duggan in the QB running back exchange just loses the ball. But again, Jade Barron, who was doing such a good job triggering effectively against the screen game. One of my biggest complaints about the defense all year was just the fact that it felt like teams could get, you know, four to seven yards pretty easily just by alignment on screens. Well, not against TCU because Barron and Ryan Watts especially just were, you know, so dynamic at defensive back triggering against – I mean, Jade Barron a couple times was making plays with two TCU wide receivers blocking him. Yeah, he, he played phenomenally. I mean, was so good and kind of, you know, what we expected to see out of him. It's it's important that they get their credit because they did their job. Those guys all showed up and played, played hard, did and played like you would expect a team to play in that type of moment. The confounding thing to me was how flat everyone on offense looked. It wasn't just Quinn Ewers, and he was a big, a big issue. But we you you and I were texting during the game and early on, I was like, something just doesn't look right with Bijan. Like he's had a couple of uh, uh, openings to break big runs. And it feels like he's trying to bounce it to the wrong hole or or he's getting too lateral. And that team speed will eventually catch up with you. And so um, from him to Xavier Worthy to uh, basically everybody not named uh, Jordan Whittington and Jatavian Sanders who kind of came on in the second half, it was a really, really disappointing effort. Especially considering Texas gets their first possession at the TCU 42-yard line. And it has felt even as good as the underlying metrics are for this offense. It's felt like they haven't capitalized on short fields all year. 
And even though you go for it on fourth down, it's a pretty telegraphed direct snap. Like Quinn is very clearly aligned off center, right? So TCU knows it's coming. And like you mentioned, like the first two drives, especially Bijan Robinson just wasn't very good. And it's and it stinks to say because he's had such a great career and he kind of models everything you want a student athlete to be off, off the field as well, right? Like we kind of joke about uh, some of the cliches, but it is the truth. And it just it stinks that early he wasn't on his game and just kind of didn't have the tough running that Texas needed to kind of get those early points on the board. Which again, at that point. If Texas is playing with a seven nothing lead or even a three nothing lead, you know, based on how their defense is playing, who knows what how this game unfolds, right? But I, you kind of can't tell the story of this game without mentioning that Quinn Ewers really did struggle a ton in the first half, and I thought he got better as the game progressed. Like in in the second half, when you get into scramble mode, I actually thought he made some pretty good throws, but at the same time. It just was too one note on offense, right? And I think that Sark talking about how they thought that the game was going to go this way and really struggled to adjust immediately, I think just kind of tells the story, right? They felt like on paper these things should work, and when they didn't work, they kept on going to it multiple times. And I don't think anything illustrates that more than the fact that there were six or seven at least Xavier Worthy deep connections that, again, like most of the year, just haven't been working. Yeah, I think that watching watching them just kind of aimlessly throw the ball down the field over and over and over again, like where was the quick screen stuff? Like they started going to it in the second half, but it wasn't, you know, by that point it was like, okay, we've kind of, jumbled up the game plan here. We haven't seen them get that badly, like worked on a script early in a game. And and I think that that gets them into their flow. But um, I, I just, I, I like what Xavier Worthy brings to the field. He's a guy that you have to keep eyes on a guy. You have to defend a guy you have to account for, but it felt like at times there was one option on the field and that was Xavier Worthy And to me, I'm going, where is Jordan Whittington in this game? And when they finally got him involved, he started cranking out some big plays. Jordan Whittington, no targets in the first half. Yeah, and that's insane to me. Here's another thing. I kind of mentioned it in pick six. I'm done with the Wildcat. Like, I I don't want to see the Wildcat. They had a drive that they started on their, like, own 20 with Wildcat. And I think it went for, like, a yard maybe – the only possible variation I wouldn't mind seeing is maybe throwing Jordan Whittington back there, considering, you know, he had a lot of uh, experience running it in high school and he gives you a little something different, but I, otherwise I'm kind of done with it overall. Here's something I want to mention on Xavier Worthy too. At the beginning of the year, I was a little hesitant to jump him. I mean, even though, shoot, Mike, we talked about on the podcast early about like, hey, Xavier needs to kind of fight back for the ball more. But it felt like it was kind of becoming too trendy of a thing to talk about. And then for some reason, the past three games, it has just gotten to the point to where for me, I'm kind of viewing Xavier Worthy as a tool instead of a weapon in the offense. I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, it feels like you kind of have to 
manufacture a way to get Xavier Worthy the ball, right? Whether it's on these thumb routes where he does a great job, uh, you know, routing up his guy one-on-one in the red zone, or if it's on a bubble screen, if it's, you know, a, a touch pass, right? I think he's a great tool in the offense, but he's not the same weapon the way that, you know, a Bijan Robinson is, or the, you know, even like a, you know, 2018 little Jordan Humphrey was, right? Like, I, I just... Or a 2021 Xavier Worthy. I'll be honest, though, like, there were even parts of it last year when I went back and watched his tape, as I've been kind of um, ironing out this take, like, because Texas was so bad last year and he was the only, one of the few positives, I think it kind of hit a lot of the aspects of his game that people thought maybe were just, you know, the fact that he's an undersized true freshman. And I don't, it just might be him. And obviously there's been a lot of smoke around about him potentially looking at the portal, you know, how much of that is true and sourced versus just rumors and overreaction. I don't know. I know that, you know, he spent a little bit of time with DeAndre Moore and was, you know, trying to get DeAndre Moore to Texas on his official visit. So I don't think that, even if it does happen, I don't think that it's, you know, fully decided yet, but at the same time, you have to find a way to get your guys. You have to find your way to get more guys, the ball early on, especially considering, I don't know, Mike, like Jatavian Sanders has a pretty costly drop on a low ish throw that I think is a little bit of a younger mistake by him, by not just changing levels and going down and securing the catch on a third down. But at the same time, People are keyed in on the tight end screens now. People are keyed in that, hey, you know, they're going to run Xavier Worthy on a lot of corner routes and deep stuff. Like, it it was just too one note against a TCU team that is fighting for a playoff berth. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, talking about that, talking about the running game, like – you're going to have games like this where it's just not working right, where guys come out flat. You hope it doesn't happen in moments like this, but unfortunately it does. But I think you've got to figure out ways out of it. And I want to talk about this a little later in the show, um, but that was the first time I really kind of had a a really negative view of Sark as a play caller. I, I think that all in all, his body of work is really strong on that side of the ball, but I thought it was just a really flat effort from him as well. Yeah. And I think it's fair for us at this point to mention some of the rumors we've heard from multiple sources, both you and me both on this, that there was a chance that TCU might've gotten signals. And when we say that it is not a, you know, Oh, TCU's cheat, nothing like that. Every football team does this. And it's kind of embarrassing to potentially have your signal stolen, right? So even if it did take them three quarters to figure that out, and maybe that explains some of why TCU was really defending the run at a level that nobody has against Texas, even, you know, basically on an Alabama level, even if that is the case, it's still pretty inexcusable to get your sign stolen like that. I mean, goodness. Yeah, I think if anybody's looking into anything nefarious here, this happens at every college in the country. I can tell you that once I was out with the staff after a camp, not the Texas staff, but a different staff, and I met a young coach who was a GA 
at the time. And like they introduced him to me by saying, this is the guy that steals science force. Like within five minutes into the first quarter, he'll have that offensive broken down and he'll know what everything is. I mean, it's just, it's a part of the game and it's something everybody does. So uh, don't take this as us accusing uh, TCU of doing anything other than their job, really. Um, I think before we kind of go to big picture stuff, I do want to, I, I want to talk about this one kind of what people see as a key moment in the game. Uh, the decision to go after the punt uh, that turned into a, uh, a roughing penalty, which eventually turned into the Quentin Johnson touchdown. It's my take that they obviously had seen something on film with their special teams because they were sending guys and they were getting guys extremely close a lot of times to blocking kicks. And when you're in that situation and your offense is doing nothing for you, why does everybody think that if they just backed off the kick that Texas would have magically got the ball and drove down the field? I'll be honest. I'm kind of of the latter opinion. They they went 74 yards on the previous drive. It felt like the offense was finally getting some sort of rhythm. I will say this, two things. One, it is much more of a flop than I realized in real time. Like Jordy Sandy was very much shook and was nearly horizontal before Demo hit him, right? And it was barely a hit, but that's what happens when the referees miss a call earlier in the game and Sonny Dyke spends three minutes correctly lobbing them, being like, hey, our punter just got hit. You didn't call um, roughing. Like, what are we doing here? So I think that, one, it's a really good job uh, from Sonny Dykes to lobby them all game to watch that. And then, two, it, I, I think it's just knowing time and place. Like, after that drive, I still think you just give the offense a chance to go down and drive. But at the same time, Mike, I do get what you're saying to where, hey, even if they do drive 60 yards or whatever, they're probably going to get inside the 10 and not be able to you know, figure out a way to score. Like getting inside the five on multiple trips and coming away with three points from it is very bad. I felt like even in late game situations, when you have a jumbo package with Byron Murphy and Keandre Coburn that has been so successful this year, I don't understand why you're not going to that immediately. Yeah, they played a lot of snaps on defense, but at the same time, points are at a premium in this game, and it just felt like, it, again, inside the you know 10, 5-yard line, it was like, yeah, TCU probably knows you're going to throw to Jatavian Sanders or you're going to try to get Xavier Worthy isolated. So they added add a safety or a nickel. I think it was Josh Newton to kind of play the inside against Worthy. And then they have two or three people on Sanders. And guess what? Three three points is all you can get from a couple trips. Yeah, I just – I don't know. I know I'm in the minority here. I don't mind. It felt like at that point it was on defense or special teams to win the game. Um, it just – like, that's how I felt about it. I, I didn't – I had zero faith in the offense. So, I had no problem coming after it. Um, I do think it was a flop a little bit. I mean, he went down and laid there and, like, rolled around like a soccer player. And then, as soon as the flag was thrown, popped right up. It's I Yeah, mean, I mean, it is what it is. clearly coached to do that. And that's the job of the punter. Look, if you can get the penalty, get the penalty, fine. Um, but – I just I don't know. I didn't have a big problem with it at the time. Yeah. I think if you're if you're you're playing aggressive on defense, I, I think people pick they want this team to be aggressive all the time, right? 
Well, and then it's like, well, it doesn't work out for you. You can't then say, well, why weren't we aggressive there? Uh, because, I mean, I think the way he was punting that ball for most of the game, you're probably looking at a drive that starts inside the 10 again. Uh, I don't I don't think so based on where they were as far as inside the 10. And, again, I for me it's just, again, the fact that they drive 74 yards on the previous possession and they finally seem to have some idea of, okay, what it takes to, you know, get the ball down the field. And, again, uh, as soon as TCU does score the touchdown – they they get the ball inside the five and they drive it 40 yards from there after the Keelan Robinson kick return, right? So at that point in a one-possession game, I'd rather just try to get the offense move the ball down the field. But again, I think it's just a, you know, it's just you know, pick your poison because there's no real answers. And if they don't go after the uh, punt and Texas gets a three and out, in the second half, right in that situation, I'm sure that one of us would be on the podcast being like, Hey, you almost got a punt. Why didn't you go after the punt there? So again, kind of in a pick your poison type situation. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is it was just a bad performance um, for the, all. I mean, for the team, I, I can't put it on the whole team. Cause like we said, the defense did play well, but um, I think that, when you look at overall the way everything shook out, the fact that you couldn't necessarily trust your offense um, in that situation, it, you know, makes it to where you feel like you've got to gamble there. Um, all right. Uh, did- real quick, I had one more thing, uh, Mike. Okay. It feels like I'm – one thing I've kind of been circling, circling on in the aftermath of this game is just Sark's comments about – how they really thought they had a good game plan and it took them a while to adjust. And I think that that, I think that's probably the double edged sword of him as the head coach and play caller, because when he has a read on a game and it's right, I think that's where you get the 49 points against Oklahoma or the other, you know, high water marks at Texas where the offense just looks like a flamethrower. But the flip side, when he does, when Sark isn't able to have a great read on a game, right? And it uh, shows, uh, you know, it, it doesn't go according to plan. I think that initial, I don't know whether he doubles down or if it's just he takes too long to adjust. But I think that is something that we're just going to have to monitor through the rest of his tenure. Like, I just don't have a great sense that the adjustments are going to come as quick as they need in big time games, which really stinks. And, you know, something that I'm sure uh, I, I don't know the release schedule this week um, off the top of my head, but we've either talked about on the state of recruiting or will talk about like it was a major opportunity blown, not just from a big 12 title race perspective, but there were a lot of recruits in attendance and there were some operations failures from um you know, Texas and that end that I were are pretty disappointing. Yeah. Not to mention um, this is another bad check Mark for him in the three, three, five defense cloud uh, cover t- uh, teams. That which, which stinks because against Oklahoma, they're running a lot of that stuff and you, you know, you just do whatever you want against it. Iowa state's a struggle, but Kansas state runs a lot of that. And eventually they kind of figure it out. Right. But I mean, 
this especially, and they, they don't run it the same as Arkansas uh, TCU doesn't, but it's, you know, a variation that gave them a lot of trouble. I think we have to look at the Oklahoma game as not a thing, something you can take data points from. Like they were. As far as the offense versus the defense, as it, for the Oklahoma offense versus the Texas defense, I agree, but. I just think that that whole game, they were so mentally screwed that they, I mean, the fact that they knew their offense couldn't give them anything, it felt like the most low effort team they played all year. Not that the Oklahoma I, defense I has been lights out. because Oklahoma's defenses look like that uh, the majority of weeks I've watched them, but. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I, that game seems like more of an aberration to me when it comes to uh, everything, basically. Quinn Ewers play, uh, the offensive, just being able to kind of roll through a game. I, I, to me, that's not a, a game. I think it's an outlier, personally. Um, so what does that say, then, if the best moment of the Texas season is an outlier? It says this team is kind of what we think it is. And I think that um, it's a flawed team. It's a better team than last year in, in a lot of ways. Um, but it's still a, a heavily flawed team. Yeah, I mean, so if that is the outlier, what is the what is the result that gives you the most positive uh, feelings about this team? Then, like, what is the if Oklahoma is the outlier? What is the positive outlook that you can you know talk yourself into Texas in twenty twenty three by looking at this game? Maybe Alabama. And that Which was is essentially a, a loss where Quinn looks good early and then. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought they did well against Kansas State, um, against the Kansas State defense. I thought regardless of the result, and it was probably more uncomfortable than needed. Like people want to hang the Iowa State game on Quinn as far as like his struggles. Quinn was much better against Iowa State than he has been against Oklahoma State, Kansas State and, uh, and TCU. I think we might as well just get into the Quinn thing as well because people are kind of, I think, oh, well, let's take a quick break first and then we'll talk about Quinn Ewers and the entire Texas quarterback situation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, and we are back on the Talking Texas podcast. Mike, just real quick, give me your thoughts on, obviously, Quinn's performance wasn't ideal, especially in the first half where almost I think this game kind of mirrored the Louisiana-Monroe game, oddly, where in the first couple of drives he was just awful and then slowly rebounded and found some success towards the end, but again, ultimately not enough against TCU. Everything with him in that game looked a step slow, 
every ball was either overthrown grossly or just underthrown a little bit, floated too much. Um, and I think just based on what I know from years of doing this, that's, that's freshman mistakes. That's a young quarterback who's not seeing it well, who's, who's still having trouble with the speed of everything um, and is lost a little bit of confidence in what he does. And I think Quinn is a guy that knowing him operates on confidence. Um, and when he's shaken a little bit, that's kind of what it looks like. So um, I don't think it's an indictment on his talent. I don't think it's an indictment on him as what he can be. But I think that the expectations for him were through the roof. I think he's done some things this year that have major expectations go up. But in the end, I, I think, you know, I'd like to see him shake out of this. Uh, but this is kind of the struggles of a young quarterback, especially on a team uh, that's not just loaded with with weapons. And even the weapons you do have, I don't know, it feels disingenuous to say Texas isn't loaded with weapons. They have enough. But when those guys aren't helping out, when those guys are dropping passes, when those guys are not, I mean, even like when you can't rely on Bijan Robinson, that's yeah. like, that's when things get at the way. Cause I do think had the running game worked early, that game looks a lot different. It's probably, you know, it's probably a little easier for Quinn to throw the ball. Um, but I also think the offensive coordinator didn't help him out when it came to, like the the fourth or fifth time he just throws one deep, you know, and, and it's just basically like screw it, Xavier's down there somewhere. Um, I think that that's not helping your quarterback out. Yeah, and it got to the point to where I was like publicly pleading for anything in the quick or short game or, or screen game, and then two drives later they throw a uh, now screen to Xavier Worthy, and it goes for like four yards, but just the. <laughs> not getting Jordan Whittington the ball until the second half and just not throwing just a very easy bubble that again, he took like 40 yards or you yeah. know, 30 yards. That's like not giving him those type of easy throws is just what kind of drives me crazy. He's so good after the catch that it's like, why aren't we getting that involved early on? And that's again, that's a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of thing. Cause if those things aren't working, people are constantly like, Oh, well, the screen game, here we go. It's, you know, that's not working. So, um, but in this case, it, it wasn't working. And that's exactly what was needed to, to kind of get things going. Um, another thing, too, I felt like, especially the past few games, but overall in the season, the preseason reports that we got on Isaiah Nayor and the fact that a lot of sources felt like he was kind of the best receiver in the program definitely showing up and especially considering the deep balls that he would be able to track and with his bigger frame, at least, you know, make defenders make a play on. I think that's the most frustrating thing with Xavier is that finally in the second half, he kind of gets a bailout call, but like X isn't even drawing pass interference uh, penalties, which is a mark for a lot of successful wide receivers that you see across the board. Like, at least make the defender, you know, get a flag on if you're going to be a tar you know, attacking the third zone that much. Yeah. So, a lot of people wanted to go to Hudson Card in that situation. No. Yeah. And I understand that kind of. 
hey, we got to win this game. But I think going to Hudson Card there is dangerous because we they basically they decided the quarterback battle in the summer. And I think we all know that Hudson Card is likely portal bound. If he comes in and leads them to a win in that game, then what? Exactly. Who do you start next week? Who and, goes and- into the spring as a starter? Who, you know, then you've got your quarterback that everybody's pinned all these hopes on, Quinn Ewers, and you're going to the spring going, well, we don't even know if he's the guy. And I think it's just a really, like, uh, slippery slope if you do that. And especially considering you nailed it that Quinn plays off of confidence, and essentially you're doing the number one thing that, you know, shoots a quarterback's confidence. And, again, I just – Card's going to be gone. Like you kind of made your bed. Like, I, I don't know. There's a, there's a possibility for me of what if you just roll with Hudson card all of last year into this year, right? Mm-hmm. Like what if you never play the Casey Thompson game? And I think it's smart, smart for Sarkeesian to not avoid that same fate this year. Even if in the moment you're just screaming for the offense to have some sort of spark. And again, I think eventually Ewers did have some success once the play calling was sweet. Like, if I'm assigning blame for this game, like, the vast majority of it is going to Sarkeesian, even though I've been pretty on the record with really liking him as a head coach and especially play calling. Yeah, I think that well, there's always a balance, right? Like, the play calling has to be good, but, like, when you call a good play, the players have to execute it. Quinn's got to make a throw that's on the mark. The receivers have to catch it. I mean, how many drops? I, I, I think there were like two early drops. You mentioned the Sanders one. I think X had one maybe. Uh, I can remember one hitting Jaleel Billingsley that would have likely been a first down right in the numbers and just dropping. Those guys have to execute. But like you said, there was there just wasn't enough to do to get them out of kind of the offensive funk. And I, I think like if you're – if you're advocating for Hudson Card, you were probably pissed last year that they were going back and forth between Card and Thompson. And you can't have it both ways. I think if you're going to, if you think Quinn Ewers is the guy, and, you know, everybody that's ever watched him has thought he is the guy that can not only win you big games, but potentially win you a national championship, you have to let him develop. And you don't develop those guys by taking them out of the game, in my opinion. You have to let him get his reps, and you have to let him know, we named you the starter in the fall. When you got hurt, Hudson came in. He was hot enough that we could have rolled with him, but we didn't. We gave the job immediately back to you. It It, it is just odd to me, and I have a few things I guess I want to get off my chest on this. One, seeing some of the same people that during the Texas Tech game were like, oh, we wouldn't lose this game if we had Quinn. Like, this Hudson Card guy stinks. To the point, Mike, where we were on the podcast basically begging people to give Hudson Card his credit, right? Yeah. So it's not like we have some anti-Hudson Card agenda or anything. Like, I feel like for the most part this year, all we've done is try to give him his credit in spite of the people who, you know, weren't. And now it's somehow flipped on his head. For me with Quinn, and I talked to our boy Kieran about this, too many times, even if it's not on the play caller, it is when it is on him, he just gets locked in on his primary read way too much to the point to where it's either hot to primary and 
that's it. And then he starts to do the thing where he kind of panic uh, steps up into the pocket and tries to jump throw to somebody over the middle. Right. Like too often, he's just not comfortable going through his progressions. And I don't know. It's just to me, maybe indicates a lack of trust with some of your options down the progression list. Right. I, I think he has a pretty good relationship with Jordan Winnington and, everything there but maybe the fact that a lot of times you're having to think about Casey Kane as your third option like they just don't have anything from that third receiver spot and then another thing I do think it's worth mentioning it and I'm not trying to say this um I guess trying to get Quinn out of the you know problem right he was a major problem during the TCU game but it is worth remembering that On his original timeline, he would be a true freshman. Yeah, he spent time at Ohio State, and I do think it's helped some this year. But, like, as far as age goes, he's essentially a true freshman starting at Texas. And I do believe he's going to be pretty lethal next year, even if this year has come with a lot of ups and downs. And I think that that exact thing you said should be remembered by all the people who are sitting here going, well, I guess Arch needs to start next year. He's not immune to these issues either. And uh, this is young quarterback play. We've all been fooled by the Bryce, but even Bryce didn't play. I'm trying to remember. I don't think Bryce played as a freshman. Remember, Um, because a lot of Alabama fans were like, oh, yeah, of course Bryce Young's going to start. We're not going to start Mac Jones. Yeah, I'm trying to think. There have been freshman quarterbacks that have gone out there and succeeded, but like you see the ups and downs. You see Connor Wegman at AM, who in his first road start had some really rough moments. I mean, that's life as an 18 year old playing quarterback in college football. And it's a common critique of Texas fans that they want everything microwaved for them, they want everything done right now. And it's true. Those people want Quinn to be a Heisman quarterback right now. Has he shown flashes of that ability? Absolutely. Is he going to put it all together this year? Probably not. But you you said it best. They made their bed with the situation. And so you have to ride that through the season or else you put yourself going into spring with the same type of quarterback questions, uh, the same type of uh, lack of clarity. And what are you probably going to do if you do that? You're going you're gonna to run another spring competition and Hudson Card thinks, okay, well, I finished out the season. Maybe I'm the guy. And then you're going to name Quinn Ewers again and then you've wasted another year of Hudson Card for him. I mean, I, I just don't think it's a win-win situation for anyone. Also, to be very clear, if the Manning uh, – I, I joke and call them the Manning Industrial Complex. I'm sure that they would not appreciate that. But, like, if the Manning family that's kind of helping make the decisions behind Arch – thought that there was a possibility that he would have to start day one at Texas. Like he, he probably would not go here. He would end up at Georgia. Like from basically every bit of sourcing throughout my time in the industry, which, you know, has for a lot, basically the entire Arch Manning recruitment, everything that I've heard is, if they think that he's going to be thrust into a position where he's not ready, like they're not going to do it. They're, they're trying to carefully manage his career. They don't want him having to go to Alabama on the road for his second ever start. Like, I, I don't understand what's hard for people to get about that. And I understand that most people, under, you know, grasp this concept. But still, people calling publicly on Twitter 
for Arch Manning to, you know, get snaps next year ahead of Quinn Ewers. It's just silly to me right now. Well, and it's it's endemic of the way people so easily move on because this time last year it was like, man, if we just get Quinn, you know, that's a thing. And and he was the new girl and, and Hudson Card was the old one. And now, you know, he's been kind of thrust into the spotlight. It ain't, it's not all, you know, candy and roses. And I think that Quinn is learning that playing quarterback at the University of Texas is one of the toughest jobs in the world. And this is kind of what comes with it. At the same time, I think we need to have uh, some perspective and some sort of uh, kind of scope on how hard it is to do that at 18 years of age. Um, I want to talk about the big picture of Sark needs to hire an offensive coordinator because I've seen it many times. People even in the media have mentioned it to us. I just don't. I never get when you hire a guy because of his system or his ability to call plays and then saying, well, let's, let's replace him. You know, I think that it's a common refrain in college station, despite the fact Jimbo Fisher was a successful offensive coordinator at one point, but Jimbo Fisher had also shown that he was a successful program manager at one point. I think you, you hired Sart because you want his offense. And I don't think you get his offense by bringing in somebody else to call it. I think that that's all part of the package designing game planning and calling it. Does he have some warts? Yeah, we've kind of illustrated them here. But every play caller has, you know, their warts. Nobody pitches a perfect game. I think, to me, it's insane to suggest that you want Steve Sarkeesian because he's just such a good program manager, but you want somebody else handling his offense. Yeah, it's silly is what it is. Like, he, if, you, if you're of that opinion, what I would suggest, like, Steve Sarkeesian's never going to let anybody coordinate his offense, at least – that's how I view it right now because he's not even like Tom Herman was an offensive coordinator. Sure. But everybody kind of understood you're hiring Tom Herman for the program management. And a large chunk of that was pretty good. Like Texas played really tough under Herman, blah, blah, blah. Like there was a lot of things that he did well. Right. But it was easy to make the Yursich hire. Right. Because there was kind of an understanding that Herman was limited. And by the way, there were people begging for Herman to take over play calling during the Tim Beck years. Yeah. With Sark, it's not that simple. And I guess, again, if you're hiring somebody to coordinate the offense at Texas, like you you don't think Sark's the guy. And I think that would probably just be the argument you should make is that Sark isn't the guy instead of thinking that, you know, promoting Brennan Marion or doing anything else would – you know, help the Texas offense. Cause I just don't see it. Now, if you think maybe that Texas over the off season could benefit by hiring a couple of ex NFL guys or talented college schemers, just as analysts to like add more to the room to maybe offer a different insight during, um, during game planning. Like, I think that that's not a bad idea. Cause I do think that when you have diversity of thought in the game planning situations, it makes the, um, it makes the likelihood of these <laughs> games where you have an idea about how they're going to play or, you know, how the defense is going to react to this run or this pass. It makes the uh, adaptability much better when you have that diversity of thought in game planning. I will say we've talked to people on the staff. It's not Sarks alone. He takes input from everybody. I've been told Absolutely. by 
certain people, hey, if this coach brings up an idea, Sark will employ it if he thinks it's a good idea. And I mean, the final call is always going to be with him, but it should be. He's the head coach. And by all account, you know, by all, uh, you know, he's the offensive coordinator, basically. And so I, I yeah. What you mentioned, I think, is interesting and maybe bringing in some analysts. I even, if these rules go through where they basically push an unlimited coaching staff, as we've heard, like, yeah, I hate, I hate to bring this name up because it gets thrown around every year. And it's like, I just don't think he's coming back to college. But like, if you could get Joe Brady to just come down here and be basically the Gary Patterson, but for offense. Yeah. And sit in the room and say, yeah, I, I like this, I like this. I don't have to recruit. I don't have to do anything else. Now, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen because Joe Brady is looks like he's fast-tracking to be an NFL offensive coordinator again. But that that would be interesting to me. And I guess my point is, right, like you are correct, and it's a good point to mention that Sark does listen to the coaches on staff, right? There is diversity of thought in the game planning. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is – that there's almost a um, an understanding on the staff. Like Sark obviously knows more than all of us. And I'd say that when you're talking offensive scheme, he knows more than like 99% of uh, coaches across the country. And I get that some people might be rolling their eyes at that because of what you just watched. But it is the truth across scheme guys on a wide level that if you're thinking about people that can really dial it up on the whiteboard. Sark is one of them, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is if you bring in another voice to that room that maybe isn't as deferential to Sark, or even though you are, uh, this people on staff are giving him stuff in the game plan meetings, it at least carries a little bit more weight or um, maybe doesn't always adhere to the ideas that he has. Yeah, and so I say all this to say I have talk to you about any of this before we got on so I didn't know your thoughts I don't think that replacing him as a play caller or bringing in somebody else to do it is productive I think what no. you said is correct that if you think if you're there then you just don't believe in Sark as a head coach and that's a different discussion and that's one probably more worth having but I, I think if you get to the point I, I thought this was Shaka Smart right like you hired Shaka Smart because of all the things he did at, at Virginia Commonwealth. And then he gets here and he's like, well, we're not going to run that. Bingo. And it's like, okay, then why do we hire him? You know, you hired Charlie Strong because he architect, he was the architect of a national championship defense. And then he gets here and he's like, well, I'm not going to call defense. I don't have, a, like Lincoln Riley's been a very successful head coach calling plays. Say what you want. Mike Gundy has been a very successful head coach calling plays. Uh, Urban Meyer was a very successful head coach who called plays. Like there were guys out there who did it, did it at a high level. And I think that if you don't think Sark can do it, it's just that's more of a commentary on him working out here than it is needing an offense coordinator to magically fix everything. I think I think that's the perfect way to put it. Is there anything else big picture you want to uh, hit on? Only the perspective of kind of something I've been preaching all year is. I thought this team was a nine and three team at best, maybe, maybe 10 and two, if, if everything just kind of went magically, um, probably somewhere between eight and four, 10 and two. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're a couple bounces away from being there, but they, they're not there. So I think if they end the season eight and four, they've kind of hit my personal expectation for them. I, I think everybody, people got caught up early in the year and talking about, well, if Quinn hadn't gotten hurt, 
this is a playoff team. And I just don't think that. I think that these issues with Quinn would have gone and um, and you would have had them earlier in the year. I, I just think perspective-wise, see how everything shakes out. Still two big games to go plus a bowl game. Let's see where we are at the end of the year and how we feel about things, even though I understand the inclination to be like, hey, that was a big moment. That was something we were waiting for. That was something this team needed to win, and they didn't, and we're frustrated about that. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will come back with the rest of the show. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, and we are back on the Talking Texas podcast. Uh, full disclosure, we had a leaf blower right outside the window, so not great for audio, but we're back and rolling on. Uh, Mike, I guess, is it time to talk about Kansas? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Kansas. Um, so I told you leading up to the TCU game, hey, this Kansas game is going to be a horrible spot for Texas in two ways. Either you blow a major opportunity in front of all of these recruits and, you know, just to really cement yourself as the number two team in the Big 12, potentially even one, and then you have to go face the boogeyman in Lawrence, or a, a dejected Texas team has to really, I guess, get a culture win against the boogeyman in Lawrence. And this is not the Kansas team of old where it's like, yeah, Texas should get them, but they haven't like this Kansas team is pretty good. Yeah, they are. They're, they're so beat up. Um, Very true. I, I mean, on paper, this is a game Texas still should win. They're, they're ranked evenly or not ranked evenly. The records are even, I should say six and four each. Um, but a lot of that I think was early season design tech kind of, you know, punted Kansas out of the stadium last week. Looking at their numbers, um, defensively, they're pretty bad. Like, yes. if, you, if you can't run the ball against this team and get your offense set up and do the things you want to do, then the offense may be broken. And then we may have serious questions about Quinn Ewers and Bijan Robinson and all those things. Offensively, they have some really interesting data points. I think the biggest is they're 15th in the country in third down percentage. Yeah. Um, where we've seen Texas at times have trouble get off the field on third down. This is a team that can exploit you there. And if they do that, you let them hang around They're in the game. Uh, also 35th in the country in rushing. And uh, I love their running back. Um, Devin Neal. Is Devin Neal. Yeah. I was going to say Deron Neal. I don't know why. Uh, Devin Neal was in By the way, Devin Neal was a big time recruit, like a four star. I want to say top two, four, seven guy who kind of shocked everybody by staying home and going to Kansas. He had some big-time offers uh, that he could have taken. So it's not surprising, but he was uh, – I think he victimized Texas pretty bad last year in Austin. Um, he was a big part of that. And so they can run the ball. I think I have been very encouraged with what we've seen from this Texas defense. Um, now, they're not immune to – 
uh, having clunkers of their own. But I think that in a weird way, they've been like more uh, more consistent on a week to week basis than uh, than the offense is. And maybe I'm just maybe it's a recency bias from this past weekend's performance. I do think they're up to the task. And the thing I, I think most about this game is it is a bad spot. You are going to Lawrence. It's going to be cold. Um, you're playing a team that's starting to gain a little mental ground inside of your head. And I think the thing that I take faith in this season for what we know about this team, and I can't wait for this to be clipped if they lose and play back for me, but um, two times this year, I think we've said this team is in a must-win spot. And that was going into the West Virginia game. We said, hey, these next two games are critical. West Virginia and Oklahoma. And then they stumble against Oklahoma State. And we're basically like, hey. Kansas State. This Kansas State game is critical. And they won both of those games. So I think in spots where we've said they have to win, they've done it. Um, Now, when you get to the point of, hey, they don't necessarily have to beat TCU, but like these are the games they kind of have to start winning as a program big picture. They haven't done that. That's kind of the next step they'll have to take. But I think when they, when you look at when they've been put against the wall before, that's kind of what we're looking at. And, and, and they've come out pretty well. Can I just say too, not having to win this game for bowl eligibility is great. And I understand that there's a large uh, section of the fan base that would probably roll their eyes about that. But when we're talking about development with these younger players, like Mike, Obviously, last year there was a little bit of a spin zone that I think actually was kind of true, right, to where, okay, not having the bowl actually helped Texas a little bit because um, they were able to really hit the recruiting trail hard ahead of National Signing Day while all these other staffs were preparing for bowls. But the truth is getting those extra practices helps so much for the development of these players. And I think especially with Quinn Ewers needing as many reps as possible – um, I, I just I'm very happy that at least that's one thing that's not going to be on Texas's mind heading into the Kansas game. Yeah, and also look around the country. I mean, Oklahoma suddenly in a spot where they're uh, they're sweating bowl eligibility. Texas A and M are they completely out, or would they have to win out? I think they if they win out, they would get there. I think they're three and seven. I thought they're yeah yeah. So are they done? Oh, God. I mean, we'll get to them later. But I mean, that you want to talk about if uh, positive Huddy gives his glass half full take of the season. Yeah, Texas has been up and down, but it could be a lot worse. And I'm gesturing at Norman and College Station. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, bowl eligibility should not be the measuring stick of any of those three programs, but it is. I mean, it just is right now. And so I think um, your, your point is good there. They are into a bowl. They will get those 15 extra practices, and those are more valuable than the bowl itself in many ways. Um, I think, uh, to me, this, this game kind of rests on what, what you see from Jason Bean at quarterback. I mean, is he the Jason Bean that's been spectacular at times or the Jason Bean that's you know kind of been middle of the road? Kansas home home and road splits, I think, are what make me pretty nervous heading into this game. Kansas um, on the road gets two wins early against Houston, West Virginia, two teams that we figured out pretty 
uh, quickly are not very good, right? And since then, they've basically beaten everybody at home except for TCU, which I think we'd agreed if they have Daniels, they probably win that game, considering that I think we were both watching that one pretty closely. But again, <laughs> since then, it's just been, yeah, they lose to Texas Tech on the road, but I don't know. It kind of feels like everybody in the Big 12, it's just who can actually – you know, go on the road and win some games. And, you know, Texas gets it done against Kansas State, but, you know, got to head back to the, what is it, like the sun, it's not the Sunflower State? Uh, Yeah, I believe so. Okay, well, have to go back to the Sunflower State and get the Jayhawks. So I, that makes me nervous. Like, <laughs> you know, also just talking about the weather conditions changing, like I got a little bit of pushback when I said it was cold for college game day. Cause I think it was in the low forties and eventually got to the uh, I think high forties and people from the Iowa's and Kansas's of the world were just like, Oh, that ain't cold. Like, you know, that that's something to monitor too. how the team responds for that. Mike, I think you were literally at the first Kansas loss game where wasn't it like 16 degrees. It was cold, and then it started raining and over time when I was standing on the field. I don't have fond memories of that night. Um, does uh, Charles and Minnehue. Um, forecast for Saturday as of right now is low of 21. Um, which, again, it, for me, feels like a death. Yeah, and I think, by the way, if you look at all the pictures of recruits on the sideline and stuff, it was pretty cold. Everybody was pretty bundled up. I think that uh, definitely compounded some of the frustrations with like the operations and stuff that weren't handled uh, particularly well, which also uh, sometimes I push back on you about like the 11 o'clock games being good for recruits, because a lot of times I just remember from me personally, and then also talking to some recruits, like it's a pain to get there early. But at least you have the rest of your day to where if stuff drags on, it's only two or three o'clock. The fact that some kids didn't get home until like three o'clock in the morning is what I think caused a lot of the issues. I actually think two thirty is like the perfect because yeah, you're probably right. You've got time to get there. If you get done, you know, it's not midnight when you're meeting with coaches or hanging out afterwards. If you want to stay in town and go out with some players, you could do that. That's a great point. Um, but I know that coaches prefer the 11 a.m. That's that's kind of always been my point is coaches prefer the 11 a.m. because they can get it out of the way and then get on to the recruiting. So it's tough. It's tough to manage either way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be cold. Like we can argue about the degrees of, of how cold it is or if it's snowing or anything. If it's under 40 to me and to most kids playing at Texas, it's cold. Um, and so – yeah, the, the weather's going to be a concern, um, but it is supposed to be sunny, and it is a 2.30 game, right? Good point. That's honestly a great point. Having the sun out definitely definitely will help. Again, it feels like Texas has got a lot of breaks with, other than, I guess, the Kansas State game, which they win at night. They've gotten a lot of breaks as far as that goes. Um, I think talking about the cold weather, I would be remiss if I didn't put the great Michael Irvin. Man, when we played in that cold weather, we was cold. I mean, that's what you need to say. Yeah, at some point, I mean, look, I, I'm a wimp. I It's supposed to be cold at the Metroplex this weekend, and I'm looking for nothing but indoor playoff games. Uh, but I also don't play football at the University of Texas. At some point, like, this is what you're going to do. And by the way, if you want to go play in the NFL, you're yeah. going to have to go play some <laughs> games in Green Bay and Buffalo and, and Minnesota. Maybe Chicago in the future. I know Minnesota's a dome. Um, oh, is it? I thought – 
Oh yeah, Minnesota is a dome. I'm thinking of uh, University of Minnesota. I mean, an old old Minnesota stadium, I believe, was a dome. Uh, well, it wasn't a dome because you have the um, you have the famous Seattle Minnesota game. But again, going on a little bit of a tangent there, Mike. Do you want to go ahead and make your pick? Yeah, I'm going to go with Texas. I don't have a score. Uh, well, let me figure out a score. Let me think about this for a second. I'm going to go with Texas. Uh, they are favored by nine at this point in the week. We are recording a little earlier than we usually do, so maybe that line moves. Um, I, I'm so screwed in the head right now because I predicted shootout last week and it was anything but. Um, I think I'm going to go Texas like uh, 33 to 33-21. I think that makes sense. To me, I think they get the running game working again, and that kind of uh, solves a lot of the issues, and then you get viewers and rhythm. I think the worst thing to do is to try to make Quinn make, you know, intermediate to deep reads early. Everything, to me, until they really stop it, it should be bubble and now screen city. Like, you should be throwing so many screens and forcing these Kansas defensive backs to tackle in space against Jordan Whittington and Xavier Worthy. Get Savion Rudd the ball. Like, I don't care. Find your dynamic playmakers. Get Keelan Robinson out on touch passes. Like, Quinn Ewer's first 10 throws should – I genuinely believe, like, maybe one should be passed, like, 10 yards. So the, you just reminded me, like – why no Keelan Robinson in that game when the offense is struggling? Yeah, he touched the ball, what, like twice, and one of the times it was a kick return that he got to the 50-yard line. Like, I, I don't I don't get it. We've heard a lot of excuses for Keelan Robinson. I've watched him be good at football too many times, and I'm sorry for the stupid analysis, but, like, God, Mike, we, like, we watch him be a good football player. He needs to touch the ball more. Like, yeah, I agree. Sorry, I don't want to go back into TCU. I just it kind of reminded me uh, yeah. when you when you said that. Um, I've got I've got thirty seven to uh, twenty four Texas. I think that the defense can. I think the defense is going to finish out the year a good. Apologies if that's the kiss of death, but I think that they get the running game going too and kind of suffocate this Kansas team. I, I'd I'd love to see what Kansas's season would have looked like if in if Jalen Daniels was there, but again. I don't even want to throw shade at Jason Bean because he's been so good. Like, yeah, I mean he he has the the ability to hurt you. He's been, you know, wasn't at his best against Tech, but still made some really big plays. I mean, was seventeen and twenty eight for two seventy and three touchdowns. I guess a lot of times that'll get the job done. Um, their defense just was so porous. I mean, you look at their numbers against Tech and you wonder how they didn't win that game. Um, you know, he had that performance to Devin Neal, 24 carries for 190 yards. Uh, and not to mention, Bean does have the element of he can hurt you with his feet. Yeah. I think for Texas, you just have to, especially on defense, you just have to be as aggressive as you were against TCU. And if you give up, like, I think that for the rest of the year, this Texas defense should maybe take the mentality of, hey, we'll have nine drives where we really stuff you and have you know give our offense great field possession if one of the 10 drives results in an 80 yard touchdown run that's just a bust where jaron thompson maybe takes a bad angle like i just love how aggressive they were triggering and you know again i just want to see more of that because we talked all year about how if texas were to hit their ceiling the defense would need to play at a top 60 level and 
if you look at the metrics, they're more like a top 30 level, which I guess gets into my frustrations with the season in that you're going to have to be perfect um, in your last two games to finish eight and four. When it, in reality, I still look at the season and I think that 10 and two is not a crazy thing um, to think about for revisionist history, considering Quinn's injury in the Alabama game and what happened at Texas Tech. And now this TCU result, which is just, you know, beyond an aberration on offense. Yeah. And three points scored. Yeah. I think that. I was the one that was skeptical about the defense early in the year, like turning the corner. I think they've turned the corner. If you look back, like, yeah, you wish they hadn't allowed all those teams to come back. But, again, I think a lot of that was on second-half offensive failures. They've just got to take that next step and say, hey, you know, no matter what, we've been put in tough situations against explosive teams, and we've and we've stood up against the test. We can do that again. And uh, if your defense travels, you've always got a chance. I – I just looking back on that man. I when you when you break down the numbers of what the Texas defense did against TCU, had I told you that last week on the show they're going to do this, that they're going to hold them to 270 total yards, uh, they're going to uh, hold them under 20 points. You'd have thought this was a blowout on national TV. If you told me, if you told, if you gave me the de- defensive numbers against TCU before the game, I would have said this is exactly like what happened when Texas hosted Missouri for college game day. Yeah, it would have been 45-17 or something like that, you would have thought. But it wasn't. So, uh, yeah, uh, we'll, I guess we'll reconvene next week and see if uh, see how everybody does. You ready to go against the spread? Let's go against the spread. Before we get into it, I do want to say – Kind of nailed it last week. Uh, Mike, you were following along in our group text with uh, Gabe Brooks uh, of 24-7 Sports and Ishmael Johnson of Dave Campbell's Texas Football. Had a little bit of a heater last week. Yeah, uh, you were you were on, man. Uh, I, I think you were uh, – I, I haven't tra- – I mean, I've kind of – I know what your bets are week to week because we text all weekend, but – uh, it's not like I remember a week three, honey. That was his best week, but it felt like last week was your best week. It it was. We ended up going, I believe, eight one and one against the spread on official plays, including a best bet uh, that we gave out on the show last week of Kansas State on the road against Baylor, which they really helped me out with uh, Will Will Howard eventually coming into the game. How easy did that cash too? <laughs> I mean. Kansas State 31, Baylor 3, and we had the Kansas State money line plus 120. Like, again, I do not want to think about what would happen if Kansas – like, we talked about maybe some of the positives that could have flipped Texas's way. I do not want to think about what the Kansas State game would have been with Will Howard at quarterback. Um, The only game that we miss is uh, West Virginia beating Oklahoma outright, which we didn't – neither one of us played in real life, but – for doing this pick segment. It was the only one that we missed. We were both on Oklahoma to get a bounce back spot and West Virginia gets them 23 to 20. You watched more of that game than I did. What real quickly before we get into the current slate, what was kind of your takeaway from that game? It was, as you kind of said early, Hey, that this is not the West Virginia home environment that people are scared of. It's kind of dead. And it was early on. It was drowned out by Oklahoma fans. It was bad weather And it looked like two kind of bad teams play, like even to the point where West Virginia finally gets a score, it has the opportunity to tie it, and then Oklahoma blocks the extra point, returns it. For two, it was Benny Hill football 
uh, playing out in front of us. The catalyst and and the reason I wasn't, I I just don't love JT Daniels. I, I just don't think JT Daniels is a guy that scares me very much, which is why I picked Oklahoma. Credit to Neil Brown. He went to his backup, Garrett Green, who got things going on with his legs, and he was unstoppable. I mean, it was it felt and like once Garrett Green came into the game, you knew exactly where it was going. I was watching during the fourth quarter. Do you think it would be fair to say that, like, I know this is such a cliche, and a lot of times we try to avoid these or make fun of people for doing it, it kind of did feel like he brought a different type of energy. Like after every first down, he was just losing his mind. Like it felt like it just kind of meant something more and getting that added element of the QB rushing attack. You know, we always talk about that plus one rushing, how much it helps as far as schematically. And yeah, it kind of did Oklahoma in. Yeah. I think that um, I'm trying to look up his numbers real quick. He was, they were running like basically just quarterback zone for a lot of that game and everybody knew what was coming and they were just getting buried. And it was another kind of poor game for Dylan Gabriel. Um, I, I think our takes preseason on both Oklahoma and Dylan Gabriel were pretty dead on that anybody taking this as a, this is definitely going to work out and there's no questions about it is fooling themselves. Um, Garrett green finished by the way, 12 of 22 for 138 and a touchdown throwing uh, and then he ran for 119 on 14 carries. So, uh, yeah, just really energizing. But, um, yeah, I think we were pretty dead on with our our, uh, our analysis on Oklahoma as a team. I don't, I don't think I expected them to be, what are they, 5-5 five and five at this point? 5-5. Yeah, five and, uh, five. Five and five, but um, I, I didn't expect it to be as smooth a transition as everybody in Norman seemed to think it was going to be. For sure. And I think – it's something we talked preseason about, right, to where they just – a lot of Oklahoma fans, and I think even a good chunk of the media just don't know what it's like to have to go through that regime change that's not, you know, steady. And just kind of overestimated um, how easy Brent Venables would have it in year one. So speaking of that team, let's just get right to him in the picks. Bedlam, Oklahoma is a seven-and-a-half-point favorite. Hosting Oklahoma State. I hate this game. If I were betting, I would not bet it. Um, yeah, no action for me here. But again, we just make these picks. Um, I, I've been much like the Quinn Ewers bounce back. I've been waiting for the Oklahoma bounce back, and they just haven't done it. It's at home, and it. I wish Oklahoma State's season hadn't kind of fallen apart because I would be very confident if it was the Oklahoma State that played in the first half of the season, and I would be all over this. But um, I'm going to take Oklahoma State. I just I, I I feel like I'm chasing Oklahoma at this point. And uh, you said it's a they're a seven point favorite. Oklahoma is a seven and a half point favorite. I'm actually, you know what? I'll take Oklahoma State to win outright, but I'll take Oklahoma to cover. Wait, I think you have that flip. Oh, I'm sorry. They're the favorite. Um, yeah, no, no, I'm taking Oklahoma State. Yeah. We were both on Oklahoma State last week as they were a two-point favorite at home with a lot of quarterback uh, instability against Iowa State. Ended up covering that one and winning outright. I've got Oklahoma State, begin again, just because you're, if you're giving me plus seven and a half, and Spencer Sanders was pretty adamant that he was going to play. 
Give me them, even though I do think there's a possibility that we do get finally the Oklahoma bounce back this week. Um, but again, if you're Just, giving me – Even if Spencer doesn't play, trust Gunnar Gundy. No. Oh, God. Um, this game I'm very confused about. I have already put in a pick in. Texas Tech is a three-and-a-half-point dog on the road to Iowa State. I've been uh, really – I have Texas Tech plus three and a half. I think they could win outright. I don't think people understand how limited this Iowa State team is because the, because they are fairly well coached and hang around in some games. Like, I, yeah, just, they don't win, but they lose very pretty, I guess. Or <laughs> I, you know, they they don't they don't get blown out. They make every game close. I mean, I I do think I actually think. And it feels weird to say with how bad the record is. The Iowa State game is a positive data point for Texas um, because that's a team that figures out ways to stay in it late, and you know they got out with a win. Um, I've been really bad picking Tech this year, and I picked them a lot with my heart um, because of my fondness for Joey McGuire and several of the players on the roster. Ames is tough; it's going to be cold. Um, I'm going to one more time roll my dice with with my heart here, and I'll I'll follow you on the Texas Tech pick. Iowa State against Power Five opposition this year: three point win against Iowa, seven point loss against Baylor, three point loss against Kansas, one point loss against Kansas State, three point loss against Texas. Then they lose by fourteen to Oklahoma, win by uh, seventeen against West Virginia, six point loss against Oklahoma State. Like. If, if you're giving me points with this Iowa State team, like, I'm just going to take the number each time, basically. I mean, that's about as simple as it can be. And even with the quarterback rotation that Tech has kind of been forced into, I just trust their offense more to find a way to get some points. Like, I don't know. Um, and then we have Kansas State, a seven-and-a-half-point favorite on the road against West Virginia – I think that Kansas State could potentially roll here. Um, started the year not liking them, but with Will Howard at quarterback, I'm going to continue to, uh, you know, just ride the hot hand with the Wildcats. And Mike, we kind of we kind of talked about it with West Virginia. Like even after the Oklahoma game, I still saw a ton of pessimism online from their fans. So it doesn't make me think that they're going to turn uh, Morgantown into a raucous atmosphere. Give me the cats. Yeah, I I think that it's not like they rallied around Neil Brown and won that game last week. Oklahoma gave that game away as much as West Virginia won it. Um, I don't think it was a big turning point moment for them. In fact, I think it was one of those uh, uh, kind of nice moments late in the year. Because for those type of fan bases, people have to understand, it doesn't matter if Oklahoma's undefeated or winless. If you beat a brand like Oklahoma or Texas, it's exciting for your fan base. And so I think there have been times when Texas is, you know, pretty bad and teams beat them and, and people don't understand why they freak out so much about it, but it is big uh, for your team to beat a brand name like that. I think this is, um, I, I just don't know enough about Garrett green long-term. I think, is he a guy that you can insert in a game and he'll make things exciting in a, in that situation. And then once he has to start, he kind of loses some of that magic. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, if we're riding uh, the Will Howard train, everybody rides. I'm going to go with, uh, I'll go with you. 
you know what is horrible about this, Mike? As I'm about to get into uh, the last pick of the Big 12 slate, I've just realized that I'm on every single road team. Uh, hey, sometimes, sometimes you find yourself in that situation. Not a great uh, recipe for success, but at the same time, going in, segueing into the last game, I'll be damned if I'm taking Baylor plus two and a half at home. TCU with less than a field goal favorite. Like, I don't think Baylor's very good, and we'll probably talk about that more next week, but, like, I don't believe that they're a very good football team, and even if you think that TCU is fluky as hell, I'm, again... I I just don't I just don't think that Baylor's the team to get them. Maybe I'm wrong. Definitely a rivalry of sorts, so that can impact it. But that's how I'm feeling. Yeah i I don't think TCU is fluky as hell. I think they're a little bit fluky, but I do think they are a good team. Um, I should say the market uh, views TCU as fluky as hell. Uh, not most like you don't get to ten and zero by just you know stumbling your way into it. Yeah, and I think everybody's waiting for the spot where they trip up. And, you know, Waco is always uh, – that's in Waco, right? Yes. Yeah, Waco is always dangerous for that. I think there are some teams that Baylor will get. Um, but I, I just – I don't see this being them. I'm with you. I, it's another one that I think we had nailed early in the season. Um, it's just – you you were on it in the preseason that the models did not favor Baylor um, from an analytical standpoint. And even though there are some podcasts on our network that just throw out analytics for favor of what their eyes are seeing, I am an analytics guy. And so I will, I'm going to go with TCU here. Mike, to you, what is like, what is the most, what is the thing that Baylor does best this year? Run the ball with run the uh, ball with uh, Richard Reese. Watching TCU just absolutely destroy t- – and again, maybe they did have signals and that's going to skew the data in a pretty serious way. But watching TCU shut down a Texas offense that I think has a lot more to it than Baylor, I, I don't know. I just – I really struggle to think that Richard Reese is – even though we like the fr- the true freshman from Belleville, but that's a lot on his plate. and. The Baylor defense, I don't I don't view them as good as Texas, right? Like this is even though we respect Dave Aranda's defensive mind, like they haven't been, you know, a lethal unit after losing a lot of bodies to the NFL last year. So I feel pretty comfortable about this one. If I had to give a best bet, it would be TCU minus two and a half on the road. And it's not a letdown game in a sense that is a rivalry between the two teams. So I don't think you're going to see them let down after Texas last week. Um, two road games back to back tough, but they've proven more than capable, man. I, I think it's silly to bet against them just because you think, you know, they might be due to lose. Best game of the week. In my opinion, USC, a two and a half point favorite at the Rose bowl against UCLA. I'm pretty excited about this game. It's two offenses that I really like two schools that will be leaving for the Big Ten in the near future. Mike, any just quick thoughts on this before we get into the picks? 
via the uh, oh, I do have to issue an apology to the University of Washington, who I said last week I just don't trust in big games, even though it was a brand new staff and um, they literally had nothing to do with any other big games in the past. Uh, for knocking off, for me, they, they looked awesome. Knocking off Oregon and really sending the Pac-12 into craziness. There's like I think we're getting down to the end here, and there's like five teams in contention for the Pac-12 championship game. Um, UCLA lost late to Arizona, and I think that that's taken a little bit of shine off of them. But I, I don't. I'm just something about this USC team, man. Like they've gotten through for the most part, but it feels like they've been tightroping it a lot, and it feels like they've tightroped it against some. Uh, some bad teams. And so I think UCLA gets them. I, I like UCLA in this game. Sorry, a little bit of technical difficulties there. You took the words right out of my mouth. I really think that UCLA wins this game outright. The running attack from Zach Charbonnet and Dorian Thompson Robinson, like you're going to use your quarterback in the run game a lot more against in a rivalry matchup against um, USC than you would against Arizona. Right. And even though, um, even though DTR had 11 carries, I think that considering the, the moment and what's at stake, because you're right, there are five teams competing for the PAC 12 title. Cause I believe, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I believe they got rid of divisions. So it truly is five teams competing with USC, UCLA, Utah, Oregon and Washington. And so uh, I I like UCLA here. Maybe if uh, Travis Dye for USC hadn't been lost to a season-ending leg injury, I'd roll with the Trojans. But it's just a lot on the USC offense's plate considering that, you know, the defense has struggled uh, quite a bit this year. And we talk a lot about second-half struggles for Texas. I watched it myself with USC giving up a late lead to um, Utah, and I believe Utah only leading the game once on their two-point conversion. Um, so, yeah, I've got the Bruins as well. Any other games that you feel like we should talk about? Um, I'm not as inclined to go over Texas and Massachusetts. We got to do it, though. Um, okay. We're uh, tracking the Aggies this year. I don't. Uh, Texas A&M is a 33-and-a-half favorite, which, uh, let's check something real quick, would be the most points they've scored all year. Yeah, so, I was about to say, man, like. I mean, uh, to be clear, UMass is 1-9 and nine with losses against uh, basically, basically everybody. They lost 55-10 to 10 to Toledo. They have a 42 10 to Twain. Yeah. Um, I guess they did compete with Arkansas State recently. But Arkansas State tough. It's not a question about if AM wins this game. The question is do they cover the 33 and a half? I think I was on Auburn last week. Um, we both were. We both were. And I sent, I, I never do this, but I sent my, uh, you know, to, to our group text, I sent the cash to that bet uh, gif or whatever I do before the game had ended, and I felt no sense of worry whatsoever. Like, mid-third mid quarter, I was like, all right, we've won that one. Um, Devon Ache did not play last week, right? No, and we had we had some 
insider intel on that one pretty early in the week. So that definitely helped. Is there any word of if he will play this week? I think the plan is for Devon to uh, sit out the UMass game and potentially come back for LSU. But even if he doesn't, I hope that even if it is like a sneaky opt out, I hope that Texas A&M fans don't go after him considering he's basically been the lone bright spot and was a key contributor on some pretty good A&M teams. Even against one and nine UMass, 33 and a half is a lot of points for a team that doesn't score points. Would you like to know the over under? Yeah, I might like that bet better. 47 and a half. I've I've got, if anything, I'm going under 47 and a half. Because yeah, yeah can score it by themselves, but I don't believe UMass is gonna score. I mean, even against <laughs> who did they play earlier in the year was uh Sam Houston Sam State, Houston State. one to nothing. Which not, not a bad team, but genuinely Sam Houston State might be better than UMass. Probably is, but it was still 31, and it felt like if I recall a struggle to get to 31. I think there were a couple late scores in that game to get there. Um, if there's no Devonta chain, I love the under for the sake of the pick. Um, just for tracking, I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I'll put faith in them to cover 33 and a half. Barely, I, I could see them winning, I could see them winning 34 to nothing. Um, I could maybe see them winning 37 to three or something like that, 38 to three. Um, I'll, I'll go, I'll go AM on the on the spread, but. God, it it does make me nervous. If you forced me, I would take AM minus 33 and a half, but I do not do this. Do not do this. Do not force yourself to watch this game. Um, Texas AM on the year three, six, and one against the spread. I imagine unders have been cashing at a pretty historic rate, other than the Mississippi State game, maybe. Um, but yeah, um, I think Georgia Kentucky would probably be a little more interesting had Kentucky not lost to Vanderbilt last week. Yeah. Um, Georgia, a 22 and a half point favorite in that one. Yeah, give me the dogs there. Um, how about Old Miss Arkansas? Arkansas was basically a Harold Perkins away from winning that game last <laughs> week against LSU. So, for clear transparency, uh, Gabe Brooks and I were pretty heavy on the LSU Arkansas under because the LSU, I mean, the Arkansas field staff for some reason thought it would be smart to like spray the field, spray the field and turn the sprinklers on during a freeze. So it got colossally worse. They had to scrape up a lot of the, um, I guess just slush and frost uh, before kickoff. So the field surface was a mess. And Mike, the talking Texas listeners have got a, ton of Harold Perkins content over the last few weeks and I feel pretty sharp considering what we just watched him do after we've again spent the past three episodes just kind of talking about how special he was or is yeah I mean he was he was incredible it was everybody rushing to Twitter to tell their Harold Perkins stories I felt late to the conversation by the time I did it so I just tweeted I can also confirm Harold Perkins is good at football um seen it seen it many times yeah, I, I'd probably take Ole Miss in that one. Uh, it's two and a half point spread, which is surprising. Um, but I, I think I'll take Ole Miss. I, there's a couple of, of games out there nationally I think we could hit quickly on. SMU Tulane with Tulane uh, minus three. 
That's very interesting to me. I would not play that game, but it, again, for the picks, if you forced me, like total I, I, 65. Yeah, I guess I would lean over. I take the over, yeah. So lethal. Um, but at the same time, Tulane coming off of a tough loss at home against UCF. We kind of talked about how much we liked that game. It delivered. Unfortunately, it was, you know, during the same time as some other uh, key matchups that we were following. But what about yeah. Illinois, Michigan? Michigan, 17 and a half point favorites to tw- number 21, Illinois. I think, I think I might take Illinois in that situation. And Illinois potentially off of a bounce, bounce back spot. They lost to Purdue at home. Kind of, uh, I don't think torpedoing is the right word for their uh, Big Ten West chances, but it creates a four-way tie with Purdue, Illinois, Iowa, and Minnesota. Uh, Gross, I guess, is my reaction to that. Uh, I don't know, man. I I think Michigan's pretty good. I would lean taking Michigan, but again, 18 points in a Big Ten game. Okay, well then let me ask you this. The total is 42. Does Michigan win by 17 and the score and it go under? Um, maybe because Chase Brown's very good, but this this Michigan defense is legit. And I could I could see a I could see a real situation where the score is, you know, 35 to 6. Yeah. I don't know. That was an interesting one. And then Utah very interesting. And we don't talk a lot of Big Ten because I think in general we're kind of uh, we lean against that conference, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, Utah, Oregon's the last one I have here. Um, and I've, I've got Oregon in that one. I think that even though it is a very tough team to bounce back against, I just trust the Oregon offense more. And I think that USC kind of proved that this Utah defense isn't like years past, even though I think that we both have a lot of respect for Clark Phillips. Yeah, I think that um, I don't know, man. I what uh, my my uh, app I'm looking at here doesn't have numbers on that. What do you have for Oregon minus three? I think I might take the uh, what's the total on it? We've got sixty one and a half. Vegas, uh, Vegas is I think has a good read that it's going to get a little pointsy. Yeah, I think I'd take the over though. Um, I could see shootout here. I don't know. I'm. It's interesting because you're trying to figure out how does Dan Lanning, a first-year head coach, bounce back yeah. from something like that against a coach uh, at Utah, Kyle Whittingham, who is knows you know, what he's doing and how to get his team on the as, right. As grizzled a veteran as there is in the coaching yeah. game, um, it is funny to see Kyle uh, Kyle not Kyle Shanahan. Kyle Whittingham on the field now because he's like all old and gray. And you remember when he yeah. was kind of like the young up and coming coach. Is he the longest tenured coach in the Pac-12? He has to be. Oh, Kirk Ferentz? Does Kirk Ferentz have more on him? Uh, Big Ten. Oh, that's Big Ten. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of you, you said Pac-12. Um, he's got to be. Yeah. I can't think of anybody that would be. I mean, maybe it's in front of our faces and we're uh, missing it. But yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that's I mean, USC, UCLA have all had turnover. The Oregon schools have had turnover. The Arizona only one I could think was maybe David Shaw, but again, I think that Whittingham was much. Yeah, Whittingham was in place before Harbaugh, I think, was at Stanford or right around that same time. 
So, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's interesting to me. I don't know. I wouldn't know how to play it. I probably would stay away from playing the spread just because, like I said, I don't know how Dan Lanning bounces back in these situations. Um, I guess I like the third home. I, I'll probably just say the over in that one. Kyle Whittingham, the second longest tenured Power 5 uh, head coach Kirk Ferentz is number one across Power Five. So again, even you you would have been on the money as the only other one. Uh, any other guesses for guys that have been tenured for a while? Big Twelve, for instance. Mike Gundy's got to be up there. He is number one in the Big Twelve, and then Pat Fitzgerald at Northwest yeah. uh, is another one that is worth. And then of course you know Nick Saban been around for quite a bit at the University of Alabama. Yeah, I've been around for a while. Um, I'm trying to think. I guess it, Big Ten has had a lot of turnover recently. There's no other obvious candidates there. So, yeah, I think that'd be that's it for the picks. Mike, anything else before we head out? No, I think that's it, man. Thanks again for everybody listening to the Talking Texas podcast with Hudson Standish and Mike Roach of Horns 24-7. If you feel inclined, please leave a five-star review with a comment. We always appreciate those. And make sure, if you haven't already, check out Mike's book, The Road to Texas, on Amazon or anywhere where you can buy books. Thanks.